Well, if you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to the fifth and sixth chapter of the New Testament book of Romans. In just a second, we're going to be begin reading from Romans chapter 5, verse 20, all the way to chapter 6, verse 2. Romans 5, verse, verse 20. Okay, let's hear the word of the Lord. Verse 20, the law was added so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's, let's pray together and ask God for his much needed help. Father, thank you for the book of Romans. It is God like all of your word. It is magnificent. We find God in it comfort. We find direction, correction, and find in it your son our lord jesus christ the living word and therefore god we find unbreakable truth which is alive and active and of course god we find your grace so so much grace therefore god from the bottom of our hearts we thank you and please because as always our need is great please pour out your spirit in order that christ will be preached from these verses and our lines of thinking, if needed, will be dramatically altered to the praise of your glory and for the good of those who are listening and for the good of those in the context you have placed us in. For Jesus' sake, Father, we ask these things. Amen. Well, when Paul wrote this letter, he did not put in chapter and verses, additions and breakups, which is in your Bible. Now, they are a tremendous help to us, but Paul didn't put them in. Rather, they were put in in the years 1551 and 1552 by a French-speaking Geneva-based printer named Robert Stephanus. He was not a scholar. He was, of course, a printer, and he was part of the Protestant Reformation. And what he did, of course, it held, making it so much easier for us to study our Bible verse by verse as we are doing this morning because it's incredibly helpful to be able to say, please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5, verse 20, instead of saying, go to, I don't know, about a, a third of the way into the book, and do you see the word the? No, not that the, but the other the. Uh, there you go, the law, which if you think about it, would be very, very difficult. However, there also can be a downside to this, particularly in, in the chapter breaks. You see, when the chapter ends... A person might be tempted to automatically disconnect from what is being said in the following chapter, ignoring um, that chapter, and kind of drawing a hard line and think, okay, Paul is about to say something disconnected or brand new to what he previously said. Therein, you, you disattached from your talk anything from chapter 5 and you think about chapter 6 in isolation, which is a terrible way to preach the full meaning 
of the verses before you. And that's why it's very dangerous to simply parachute down into a text, ignoring what was said before, ignoring what was said after, and ignoring the whole bent of the book and not let your lesson hang on any of it. Which if you do that in Romans, you absolutely ruin Romans. Especially here in the transition from the end of chapter 5 to the beginning of chapter 6 where we read something which on the surface may seem a bit strange. Something which certainly runs against the grain of religious thinking and certainly human thinking. So do you see it there, chapter 5, verse 20? The law was added so that the trespass might increase. And so you might want to say increase as in like more sin or as in an escalation of sin. So the law was given to have an uptick, an increase in sin. And you want to say, really? Are you sure about that, Paul? The law given by God, do's and don'ts from God. And the reason why was so that, verse 20 again, so that the trespass sin might increase. Now, loved ones, please do not take this lightly and don't untie this verse from your Christianity. The gospel of received righteousness as opposed to earned or maintained righteousness by good works, that is radical. It is distinct from all other religions, but it's also distinct from some forms of Christianity because some forms of Christianity think the whole goal of preaching and so the whole goal of the Bible is to teach people to, to do what they don't want to do. So, so there's a bit of arm twisting. There's a bit of brow beating, trying to get people to do what they don't want to do. And you're using the moral teaching of the Bible, the law, in isolation. And you kind of weaponize the law, which, which is a Christless, gospelless way to preach. In fact, there's a phrase that we mentioned here a while back, which is moralistic, therapeutic deism. All right? Moralistic, therapeutic deism. Fancy phrase, but it simply means you preach the commands of the Scripture, you preach the moral commands of the Scripture, and that's it. A Christless sermon. No grace, no gospel, no cross, no Christ. Just try harder. And do better. There's the law. See, see, and here's how. Which is in many different ways saying, you be a good person and God will love you more and God will bless you more and you'll feel better. So here's how you can be a good person. Moral instruction all by itself from the Bible alone to try to do that. And while it may not be intended, that is less than the Christian message. Indeed, that is actually anti-Christian. It's an anti-Christian message. There, there, there is all the difference in the world between, between isn't you know, morality great than isn't Christ grace. Okay? All the difference in the world between isn't morality great, isn't the truth great, but isn't Christ great. So look how Christ is so much greater and so much grander, more wonderful than you ever thought. And don't you see that all your problems stem from failing to see that? And nothing more. You see, not only is moralistic preaching giving a people a goal which they'll never be able to reach, but it promises success and moral growth which it cannot deliver. Okay, how do we know that? How can I say that? Well, here's one way. Verse 20. The law was added so that the trespass might increase. 
So you see, received righteousness, the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone, so, so righteous people live by faith, that says that all our moral efforts cannot contribute one bit to our salvation in part or in whole. Doesn't matter. So it could be day one of your conversion. It could be day 3001. And if you think that or you try to do that, not only have you rejected the fundamental truth of the gospel, that righteous people live by faith, but you have regulated the work of Jesus Christ on the cross to one of many necessary things on your list instead of the main thing, instead of the only thing. Indeed, you'll never find in your New Testament epistles a moral imperative, a be good text, not tied tightly to a gospel indicative, okay? The moral imperative, gospel indicative, okay? Again, you will never find in your New Testament epistle a moral imperative, a do or don't from God, a be good from God, which is not tied to a gospel indicative. That is, this is what the grace of God has done for you and to you by the finished work of Christ on the cross. So imagine sermons, Bible lessons, using the Bible not for the preaching of Jesus Christ, but simply giving the ever-increasing list of religious rules. Do this, don't do that, give better, pray better, do more, study harder, be a better father, be a better mother, be a better kid, be a better worker, sing harder, be better with your dollars and cents, have more faith, etc., etc. Never-ending list, no good news, no gospel at all, no grace. We... We were taught they're called in, in school synagogue sermons. Making God appear like he's so inactive and barely necessary. So he's like a football coach, always on the sideline, but never actually in the game. When the Bible says, oh, he's in the game. He, he is in the game. And so Paul says then, God says, chapter 5, verse 20, the law God's do's and don'ts were added so that the trespass may increase. I, I have a song on my playlist that has the title, All You Ever Do Is Bring Me Down. <laughs> Sometimes I sing that song to myself. But in some sense, that's the law. That's what it was meant to do. All it ever does is bring me down. And loved ones, make no mistake, verse 20 would have stunned the Jewish people of Paul's time, of any time, and the religious moralists as well. Because they were under the impression that God's moral law was given to increase righteousness. A kind, of, a kind of the more rules we know and the more rules we have and the better we understand them, the better we will be. So they thought that law would increase righteousness, not increase sin. But Paul says, no, the law was added to increase sin rather than diminish sin. And even in Romans chapter 7 verse 8, the law provokes sin rather than preventing sin. Now, again, please think with me. We may be used to, and we may even like the sermons which are simply, tell me what I'm doing wrong and how I can do it better, where you and not Christ is the melody line and the focus of the talk, a talk which doesn't depend on grace, a talk where Christ is not explained and relied on, a talk where grace is barely if at all needed, a talk where, where no justification by faith is running through the veins of the talk, a talk which puts confidence in ourselves, a you go and do this talk, a talk which has Romans chapter 5 far from view, 
as Romans 5, which tells us how we became the way we are in the first place. And it tells us, I can't pull myself out of this predicament. A talk then which would breed false hope. Pride, if you think you've nailed down the do's and don'ts as they were explained to you. Or pride, if you promise, you know what, preacher, I hear you. I'm going to try harder and I'm going to do better in the coming days. Paul will have none of that. Paul will say, only the giving of grace, the fundamental change that Jesus makes in a person, only the giving of grace can change a person, not the giving of a law, not a list of rules set in front of your face, you know, in a talk with a few inspirational stories of how Betty and Bob did it to make us say, well, by golly, if Betty and Bob did it, then I can do it too. Very, very silly. It ruins, Titus chapter 1 verse 11, it ruins whole households. They do not know what they're talking about. 1 Timothy 7, excuse me, 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 7, Paul to Timothy on the false teachers who were in Ephesus who were preaching the wrong use of the moral law. They were getting it all mangled up. Indeed, Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 7 just hammers home the point of Romans 5 verse 20 as he writes, now, if the ministry that brought death was engraved in letters on stone, okay, that is the ministry of the law, incomplete, Christless, crossless, brings death, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? A righteousness from God, which is Christianity. In fact, I have this note posted on our refrigerator at home. It's real simple. Christianity, a righteousness from God. And I have it there to remind myself of that spectacular truth because I am so prone to forget it and think Christianity is a righteousness from me instead of God. Listen to Ravi Zacharias on this, on this understanding of law. He says, The whole law given at first to Moses came in about 613 precepts. These revealed the parameters in which God prescribed authentic worship. One cannot be overwhelmed by the sheer weight of obligation. About a half century later, David in the 15th Psalm takes these 613 precepts and reduces them to about 11. Two centuries later, later Isaiah shrinks them to six. Micah takes those six and summarizes them into three. Habakkuk takes Micah's three and crystallizes them down to one command. The just, the righteous shall live by faith. It's redemptive history. It's the way we need to understand our Bible. So, so remembering what we've learned so far is important, which takes us actually to our first point, review it. So just let's remember what Romans has been saying. In the first chapter of Romans, Paul, after announcing the main theme of the whole book of Romans, the righteousness of God, which is by faith, then he turns his readers to the universal revelation of God's wrath on humanity because God has given his self-revelation to everyone. We are born with it. We know things about God and about morality, everyone, and universally, we, we disobey. We're fallen, all of us, corrupt in sin, having repressed that knowledge. That's what Paul says around verse 19 of chapter 1. Repressing it with our disobedience and exchanging it with a lie. So we worship the creation 
and not the creator. Paul goes on to say, because of that, God gave humanity over to a reprobate mind. In other words, a troublemaking mind. Trouble, trouble, trouble. We have it by nature. Then Paul gives a list, a catalog of these troubles, these vices, these sins near the end of Romans 1, which is, which is our practice. Then in chapter 2, he brings both Jew and Gentile together they, before the bar of God's judgment and shows even though God's law was given to everyone inwardly and to his chosen people visibly in the commandments, nevertheless, both Jew and Gentile have broken God's commands entirely. None righteous then in chapter 3. And Paul spells out the depths of our depravity, writing by the works of the law, no one will be justified because by the law we become aware of our sin. Therefore, the whole world should be silent. It's a beautiful thought, right? No finger pointing at God and no finger pointing at each other because the whole world is guilty, all of us, before a holy God. And then, thank God, Paul unpacks in chapter 3 the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone, telling us what Jesus Christ has accomplished at the cross in order that a person can be justified before God, not by their works, but by grace through faith alone. So those big words, remember, propitiation and redemption and expiation, they're all explained there. Then, using the example of Abraham in chapter 4, Paul explains how justification by faith is not something new God, had, God you know, decided to do on the fly. Rather, it's something very old. And it was the very means that Abraham believed God and was counted by God as righteous. In other words, justification by faith has always been God's way to save people from their sins. It's the only possible way in light of Adam's sin, which is imputed to all of us. And that's chapter 5. And we spoke then in chapter 5 about the benefits and the consequences of justification. Namely, we have peace with God. We have access to God. Uh, we have grace from God to endure suffering. As God is always up to something good for the Christian at all points, in their day-to-day -day existence, especially when suffering takes place. In other words, our life in suffering is the same thing as Jesus' life in his suffering. Something terrible happened. An innocent man goes to the cross, but something wonderful happened. A good Friday, because people now can be forgiven by God. It's the same with us when we suffer. Something terrible is happening, happening but something good is coming. And so what has followed is, as we've been learning recently, that Paul gives us this spectacular comparison and contrast between Adam and Christ and, and focuses on the fact of imputed sin for all humanity and imputed righteousness for those in Jesus Christ. That Adam's sin is imputed to us all, but Christ's righteousness is imputed, given to those who repent and believe on his name. Then Paul, after he compares the effects of Adam's sin and Christ's obedience, which led him to the cross, he just bombards us again and again and again. It's a cascade of grace. Grace for the people of God. How much more grace, he says, verse 15 and verse 17. Grace, powerful. Grace, grace, grace. Overflowing grace, verse 15. Ever-increasing grace, verse 20. It's so beautiful. If you understand the nature of yourself of sin, it is so stabilizing. It makes you feel good. It makes you feel secured. It humbles you. 
and it makes you feel loved. All right, then that, that's our first point. Review it. Romans, we did. And all that then sets the table for our second point, believe it. And so what we have then in verse 20 is what is called a purpose clause. And a purpose clause gives the reason why a certain action has taken place. Okay? The law came. What was its purpose? Now here's our question. What energizes or increases sin according to verse 20? And the answer is plain. The law. So the moral law of God, God's standard of righteousness, is that, was that, which energized or increased sin. But, verse 20b, where sin abounded, what happens? You see it. Grace did much more abound. So if you ask God, what is it that increases sin? God would say, the law. And if you ask God, what is it that increases righteousness? His answer is not our obedience, but his. Verse 20b, verse 21, his grace through his son. So God would say, it is my grace, verse 15 of chapter 5, and the gift which came by the finished work on the cross of Jesus Christ, by grace, verse 21, reigning through righteousness. And you say, whose righteousness? Answer, Christ's righteousness. That is what increases righteousness. So, loved ones, our salvation, the the strength of it is never going to depend on us. If it did, we could boast, we could judge others, and we could lose it. But it doesn't. So we can't do any of those things. And therefore, Paul says here, the, the energies of law and the energies of grace are completely different. Law incites unrighteousness. Remember moralistic therapeutic deism where, where only the command is preached you know with a few tips of, on how to accomplish it that is death it's dressed up in fancy clothes but all it is is death and it feeds the, our pride law on its own incites unrighteousness grace the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ gives righteousness So, remember death reigned from Adam to Moses? That was chapter 5, verse 14. And now God adds here the whole of the Old Testament law. And he does this so that, okay, sin may abound. Sin may increase. Now, let's just think, why in the world would God want sin to increase? You might think that he's God. He would want it to decrease. Why increase? Here's the answer. Number one. God's got a bigger goal in mind here, by the way. Number one, the law of God reveals our sin so that a person would see their desperate need of a Savior, not morality. Major difference. Romans 3.20, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious, aware of our sin. So the law of God comes like a hammer and reveals to us our helpless condition And God hammers and hammers so that we could see we need mercy. We need grace because the straight edge of the law, all it does is reveal how crooked we are. The law reveals to us the reality of our sin and really the truth of Romans 5 verses 12 and following that Adam's sin is honestly imputed into us. That's the first reason. The second reason is the law also defines 
our sin. All right? So remember the principle which was set before us. Where there is no law, verse 13, there is no sin. Because by sin's very definition, sin is the breaking of or rebelling against the law of God. And yet, we have in us this inherited corruption, imputed sin from Adam. And God gives the law that we may see the truth of this and see the extent of our sins. But also, here's the thing. Sometimes in our common Christian life, we can kind of be subjective about what is good and what is not good. And so we think that we can define what is good and what is not good, what is right and what is wrong completely on our own. No, no, no. The law defines sin for us. Okay, so the law reveals sin. It defines sin. But also, number three, the law incites us to sin. Okay, so where do I get that from? That's Romans chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. Just listen carefully. Shall we say then that the law itself is sinful? Of course not. But it was the law, Paul writes, that made me know what sin is. If the law had not said, do not covet, I would have not have known such a desire. But by means of that commandment, sin found its chance to stir up all kinds of coveting in me. Okay? The law incites sin. So forgive me, but is this not the same thing? So when the pastor only preached, do not do this and do not do that all by itself and told me you need to be better here and you need to be better there, you need to try harder there, you need to be more serious over there, you need to love others more, be a better fill in the blank, whatever it is, surrounding his talk completely with those commands, Paul would say, sin found its chance to stir up in me all kinds of ways to rebel against the very things he told me not to do and do. That's what Paul's saying. Here's another one. When the pastor told me the quality of my life could be dramatically improved, just do this and go here and have faith for this, or when the youth leader, he told me not to kiss. And that's all he says. And then he gives me six keys on how not to kiss another person. What does that do? It makes me want to kiss everybody. It increases sin. It, it stirs sin. Believe that. Believe it because that's what the Bible says. And that is how fallen we are. Something good comes across our plate. The law of God. It is good. It's just the recipients of the law are not good. And if we think this is untrue for us as adults, just remember your own childhood. I mean, watch your child. The more rules we give them, the more determined they are to break them. And then you need to add more rules on top of the other rules. And parents, just, just think about that. The gospel and not a long list of do's and don'ts for your kids. That, that the way of the cross is the way of obedience. That's grace. And, and I want to tell you this. With the risk of you thinking that it's boasting. I don't think I am. Because, because we just kind of stumbled onto this as parents really early on. So we weren't thinking this was the way to go. We honestly, we just kind of stumbled into this. So as parents, my wife and I, 
we gave shockingly few rules to our kids growing up. I mean, you might think that we were bad parents if I told you how, how few rules, how shockingly few rules we gave and how little we did by way of policing our kids growing up. But we did give them a gospel a lot. We gave them a gospel a lot and we showed them, sometimes by my own sorry behavior, why Jesus Christ is so needed and why Jesus Christ is so faithful and why his grace is, is what we need. The law reveals sin, the Bible says. The law defines sin. And the law incites sin. So where, there, where the law was added, sin increased. But then the point that Paul is trying to make, again, is this contrast of how the gospel and the compassion and the mercy of the God of the gospel is so beyond us by saying, look at the rest of verse 20, please. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more, much more. Now, notice this is not just a comparative equation. Okay, so it's not, okay, you have two sides of sin and then you have grace. And so they're on a scale. So you have 10 pounds of sin and it's matched by God giving 10 pounds of grace. And off you go. Uh, an equal ratio of sin and grace that God gives. Absolutely not. This is not comparative. This is super. Superlative, or I can't even say the word, and I apologize. In other words, I'll just get to it. This is, there's no comparison here. You cannot compare our sin with God's grace because grace just mows it down. So you have 10 pounds of sin, and you have an unlimited amount of grace. Grace. That's how good God is. Where sin abounds, increases. Grace does much more abound. Increase. I mean, you just want to say, hey, 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 right? That is like sin. Our sin is like a snowflake. And God's grace is like an avalanche. Just, just mows it over. And, and don't think by saying this that we're, we're somehow reducing sin. We're not. We're just magnifying grace which puts all the attention on Christ, where it should be. And loved ones, that, that is true of all of us. We live as Christians in the presence of, of a superabundance of grace that is far greater than the depths of our personal disobedience. That's the way God wanted it. That's the way God made it. That is remarkable. Believe it, believe it. Paul then finishes this line of thought by saying, verse 21, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, so what's he saying there? It's not a throwaway verse. First, by saying that sin reigned in death, keep in mind he's already said that sin brings death. Here he's saying sin reigned in death is, is sin's exercise of its power and its authority. And so if you want to see where the reign of sin may be found, you just look into the face of death. Because in death, you, you see the exaltation of sin, 
right? You see in death, you see the conclusion of sin. You, you see sin full grown, as James says in his epistle. The empowering of sin, it's like an invasion. And you see its power when people die. You see the reign of death. Now, how can we defeat that ourselves? Over, uh, by the way, uh, over 154,000 people die every day in the world. That's the reign of sin. That, that sin reigned in death. But grace met sin head on and defeated it. Grace then becomes the controlling reality for the Christian. Okay, how? How has that become the controlling reality? Well, look how the chapter ends. By Jesus Christ our Lord. Loved ones, that is it. That's all that's there. It's Him. It's Him. And I want you to just notice this. If you look at your Bible, the whole of chapter 5, that theme of Jesus Christ is woven through the whole thing. Just look at verse 1. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through whose obedience? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, justified by who? The blood of Jesus Christ. Verse 9, saved from God's wrath through who? Jesus Christ. Verse 10, reconciled to God by who? By the death of Christ. Being reconciled, I'm saved by Christ's life. Verse 11, we have joy in God through who? Our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 15, by one man, Jesus Christ. All that imputed righteousness. Verse 17, shall reign in life by the one man, who? Jesus Christ. And finally, verse 21, grace reigns in righteousness by Jesus Christ our Lord. You remember what Luke wrote in Acts chapter 4? Neither is there salvation. I'm going to add justification, acceptance with God, forgiveness, under any other name, for there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And every one of us then should realize that apart from the work of Jesus Christ, we would be doomed to in eternity forever without him. Because God hates sin. And we are sinners. And we've been imputed that sin. And so we need to be imputed the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So Paul says, where the re was the reign of death, God came by his grace, overpowered death. The death of death is what John Owen wrote. The death of death by the death of Christ. And now death is overruled by life by all who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Someone said it like this, death is but a moment. The victory lasts forever in Christ. So when George Frederick Handel, when he wrote the famous Handel's Messiah, which is performed at Christmas time all over the world, he wrote 240 pages of the musical score in just 24 days. Probably, I think, the greatest musical accomplishment ever. And when in those 24 days, he never left his house. And from time to time, his friend would come just to check on him, make sure he was doing well. But his friend would write time and time again, I, I would see him weeping with emotion over the pages of his musical composition of, of the Messiah, of Christ of the gospel. And this is what Frederick Handel wrote. The gospel. The gospel is too much for me. 
What a wonderful thing it is to be sure of one's faith. How wonderful to be a member of the church which preaches the free grace of God through Christ as the hope of sinners. If we were to rely on our works, my God, my God, what would become of us? And then he says it, right? He shall reign, King of kings and Lord of lords, and he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. So one day God's grace will destroy death and consummate the kingdom. So we, we may have changed a thousand times, but God has not changed once. And when a person is convinced of this, everything changes. And we now know and live in the truth that God's throne is the throne of grace, that our God is a God of grace, and we can come to him boldly and honestly to receive mercy and to find grace every day for every need. Remember what Jesus said, you come to me, all you who are weary and tired. You know, what else? Afraid, brokenhearted. Those of you lost, troubled, confused, you're beat down, treated unjustly by others. Every one of you who are inadequate, not enough, imperfect. You come to me, sinner. And I will be for you what you cannot be, righteous. And I will give you rest. All through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who, verse 21, brings eternal life. All right. Review it. Romans, we did that. Believe it. The law incites, increases sin. But where sin increases, grace increases all the more. Superabundant grace. Final point, and it'll be brief. Enjoy it. Now, remember Paul did not put the chapter break there, which is in our Bibles. And therefore, he's still in the middle of this contrast of the excellence of God. And here he's enhancing and telling another result or another consequence of justification by faith, which is sanctification. And as we work through this chapter, both this Sunday and Lord willing the next, what he's going to show us is the only way, the, the biblical way to preach sanctification or morality is to preach Christ. So he writes in chapter 6, verse 1, what shall we say then? So there's this, this, this pregnant pause here. Having explained the benefits of the gospel, now he's telling us what the gospel fuels in us. In other words, what shall we say to the supremacy and the triumph of grace over sin and over death, answering the question, and this is the question that people have, does the message of salvation by grace alone, does it lead a person to stay unchanged morally, right? Do they just stay the same? Paul's answer to the question is no, absolutely not. So he says, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? That's the question. Answer, by no means. In Greek, it reads, may it never be so. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Now, during the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, the charge which was immediately leveled on the Reformers was the charge of, of what was called antinomianism. Right? Anti means against. Nomos, law. Nomos is the Greek word for law. Anti against uh, nomos law. Antinomianism is being opposed to or against the law of God. So in other words, God doesn't have any rules. And the fear of those who opposed the Protestant Reformation was that justification by grace alone would be taken by the people as a license 
to sin so that we can live however we want to live and it would be fine. And of course, the beauty of the response from, from the Protestant Reformation was the classic phrase that most of us know. We are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith which is alone. Christ's righteousness saves us, period. Justification by faith alone is by Christ alone and His righteousness, but it was never intended for a license to sin. And the same argument is made by those who do not hold to the doctrine of eternal security. They say, well, look, if you believe in eternal security, then what you really mean is that once you're a Christian, you can just sin all you want and you're going to be okay. However, now listen carefully. One of the ways you know that the gospel you have and the gospel you hear is the gospel Paul gave is someone coming up to you and essentially saying, you know what, Paul, you're too soft on sin. You keep telling people about grace, 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 and they're going to take advantage, and they're going to sin, 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 right? If you're justified by faith and works don't count, and if works don't count, then works don't matter. And when they say that, they totally check out of Romans chapter 1, verse 5. Paul says, God forbid that. May it never be so. No work, okay, no work will ever do or contribute to our justification, to our salvation. But that's not the same thing as saying that works don't matter. And so we are not justified by good works, but the Bible teaches we are justified for good works. We are not justified by our sanctification, but we are justified for sanctification. That the fruit of true faith, which conforms us, it conforms us into the image of Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to hold that for a minute because I've been around Christianity long enough to know to tell you that the image of Jesus Christ, which is being fashioned in every believer, is not the same thing as a super improved you. But it is a brand new you. Okay? So Paul's not saying in sanctification, okay, cool. I pray three hours a week. Uh, now I pray four hours a week. I read two chapters of the Bible. You know what? I'm going to read three chapters now. I do three Christian things a week, three acts of service. Now, by golly, I'm going to do five. No, listen carefully. Being fashioned in the image of Christ is not a super improved you. But it's a brand new you. How could it not be otherwise? We are talking about being made in sanctification into the image of the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but that is like stunning to me. So, so let's just close with two things. First, this is, this is from... C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, okay? And it speaks about sanctification. Listen to what he writes. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you understand what he's doing. He's, he's getting the drains fixed right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing and you're not surprised, but then presently, he starts knocking down the house about in a way that hurts abominably. 
It does not seem to make sense to you. What on earth is God up to? The explanation is that God is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Okay, so he's not just improving you. He's changing you. Throwing out a new wing here. Putting on an extra floor there. Running up towers. Making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage. But God is building a palace. A palace that he intends to come into and live in it himself. You see? And here's the second thing. Even in chapter 6, this chapter that's primarily about sanctification, Paul gives us no moral imperatives. He gives us no tips on how to be holy. No, what he does tell us is that you are now a new creation. Simply be what you are. You were made holy through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now be holy in the power that Jesus gives through that same cross. And see what he's doing, listen carefully. He keeps dragging us back to the cross. He keeps dragging us back to the cross and he says, look at what Christ has done for you. Look at what Christ has done to you by his grace, by his his suffering and death on the cross. Now go be what you are. That's not the same as moralistic preaching. Thank you for your attention. Let's pray. Father, we, we have all turned away and rebelled against you. Some of us, God, have openly just ignored your laws. Others have conformed outwardly, but inside we are a wreck. And on our own, we are not blameless and we are not innocent in your sight. Not on our own. So even the best deeds have often been done just to simply justify ourselves or to establish some kind of righteousness by ourselves and not your son. And God, we are sinners. And what we deserve is to be cut off from you forever. But thank you that you are a gracious God. And you sent your son, the righteous one, and he came into our world and he took on our flesh. He obeyed you and kept your law perfectly. And then, God, at the cross, he gave us that righteousness and he, his righteousness, and he took on all our sin and shame. And so at the cross, Jesus was cut off from you for a time so that by faith we could be with you forever that is grace god that is how good you are so god when we are afraid when we wander from the cross give us help when our sin and shame overwhelmed us remind us that our sin and shame doesn't overwhelm christ and that he destroyed it forever on the cross Help us to remember how compassionate you are and help us to remember that we've been given a new heart and therefore a new desire to obey you and to love your law. But God, please take our eyes off our personal performance 
and keep our eyes on Jesus Christ where they need to be. His perfect performance and not ours. And Father, may your love and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit rest and remain on all your children, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you.